Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 575 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu, where you'll see them organized in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. This interview that we're about to do, more of a discussion than an interview, will probably be the most controversial one I've ever done, and you'll see why in a minute. But we're going to talk about something called conspirituality, which is a term that refers to the adoption by various aspects of the spiritual community of conspiracy theories. Since my audience is largely the spiritual community in various flavors, it may seem like an accusation, I hate to use that word, but probably we'll be addressing people among in this audience who believe some of the things that we'll be critiquing and, and criticizing and wondering why anyone would believe such things. So please don't feel offended by this. And in fact, if you would like to contradict something we're saying, don't hesitate. There's a question form on the upcoming interviews page, and you can just uh, send in a question, and we'll try to address it and try to make it substantive. Just to, don't just say that you know you guys are a bunch of jerks. Um, we already know that. Our significant others have told us on several occasions. We'll take it seriously and, we'll, and respectfully, and we'll try to give you a, a good response. Anyway, the we that I'm referring to here is uh, Derek Barris, Matthew Ramsky, and Julian Walker. And I thought that rather than me reading a canned bio of them, which would be kind of boring for to hear me read it, I'll just have them introduce themselves. So why don't you guys do that in the order that I just uh, said your names, Derek Barris. I am a Los Angeles-based writer, a fitness instructor, and I've worked in media for about 30 years. Uh, I have an background in religious studies is my academic studies that focused on Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism. And I've just been tracking the wellness community as a yoga instructor and as a journalist for decades now. And uh, that is basically what brought me to where we are right now. And I've known both Matthew and Julian for about a decade. And we seem to while we differ in certain regards, we have a lot of crossover. So that's why we've decided to come together as a team. Okay. Matthew? Uh, yeah. Joining you from Toronto, I'm Matthew Remsky, and I am a cult researcher and journalist. Um, I've, I'm the survivor of two cultic experiences uh, that have taken me about, I don't know, 15 years to recover from. Uh, and over the past six years, I've kind of committed my research time to figuring out what cultic dynamics are, how they work, uh, and how they infiltrate and really capitalize upon the vulnerabilities of spiritual communities, especially uh, yoga and Buddhist communities. And yeah, I think I, I've got a, the, the last book that I wrote was called Practice and All is Coming, and it's uh, an investigative study into the institutional abuse within Ashtanga Yoga. Uh, and its founder, Patabi Joyce. So 
Yeah, that's a little bit about, about me. I'm Julian Walker. I'm primarily a yoga teacher and a body worker and ecstatic dance DJ. I've been immersed in, in those kinds of things for the better part of 30 years. And I think through being in that community, uh, over time, I found myself becoming a, a little bit of a critic of certain aspects of the new age spiritual bypass. I, I got more into psychology, more into trauma healing, more into trying to understand what to me would be a more integrative approach uh, that that was able to sort of reckon uh, how spirituality, science, and psychology might fit together in in ways that that are sustainable. Uh, and I wrote an article for Medium called Red Pill Overlap. That was sort of my entry point into this domain that we're going to be talking about today. So anyone who wants to check that out, uh, the subtitle is something like uh, How New Agers Have Swallowed QAnon Red Pills. Okay. And for those of you who may not have watched this show before and don't know who I am, my name is Rick Archer. As I said, I've been doing this show for about 11 years I'm 71 years old. I learned Transcendental Meditation when I was 18 and actually haven't missed a meditation since that day, a couple hours a day on average over the years. I was the teacher of it for about 30 years, but I'm no longer in the TM movement because you know, I kind of became too independent in my thinking, I would say, and I no longer fit comfortably within the confines of that organization, although I, I wish it no harm. It did take on some cultish aspects that I didn't feel comfortable with. Okay, I defined conspirituality briefly in the beginning. Why don't you guys give it a definition? Well, first off, thank you for having us on. I should say that. So oh, sure. Really, yeah. pre really right. appreciate it. Oh, and let um, me just say before you go on that you have a podcast called Conspirituality at conspirituality.net. And I have listened to every single episode. I think there's 27 of them or something now. Wow, thank you. In their entirety. And they're two hours long, plus the bonus episode things. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've really been a fan of your show. And um, I consider you guys uh, much smarter than I am and better writers and more eloquent. But maybe a little bit of it has, has rubbed off in my listening. Well, we, we have to object to that, first of all, but go ahead, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had mentioned that uh, spiritual community, and one thing that uh, I think we can all recognize is there are many communities. And, you know, we can say a broader understanding of people who care about wellness, holistic healing, yoga, body work, even going into astrology and channeling. There's a lot of different subsets. But what basically the term conspirituality was coined academically in 2011, and at first it popped up in 2008 by a music group. Uh, but it was just coined to reflect the growing merging of the wellness community, who generally has a certain skepticism about the medical system and government and such with the more alt-right conspiratorial thinking. And it really is nothing new. You saw this crossover with the John Birch Society and the hippies in the 60s. You can probably go before that as well throughout the, the 19th century along with that. But it really captured a sentiment that was particular to the yoga communities that were emerging, especially based in America, and their anti-vaccination rhetoric, for example. And then it's just really hit a fever pitch in the last year. And that's why I think the term took off. I found it. Jules Evans wrote a piece based on the 2011 academic paper, and then I covered it for Big Think, and then that just kind of snowballed from there. 
You know, I've got the abstract from that paper, which is really cool. It's Charlotte Ward and David Voas, and their paper is called The Emergence of Conspirituality. And they write that the female-dominated New Age, with its positive focus on self, and the male-dominated realm of conspiracy theory, with its negative focus on global politics, may seem antithetical. There is, however, a synthesis of the two that we call conspirituality. We define, describe, and analyze this hybrid system of belief. It has been noticed before without receiving much scholarly attention. It's a rapidly growing web movement expressing an ideology fueled by political disillusionment and the popularity of alternative worldviews. It has international celebrities, bestsellers, radio and TV stations. It offers a broad politico-spiritual philosophy based on two core convictions. The first is traditional to conspiracy theory, and the second is rooted in the new age. So the first conviction they talk about is a secret group covertly controls or is trying to control the political and social order. And two, humanity is undergoing a paradigm shift in consciousness. Proponents believe that the best strategy for dealing with the threat of a totalitarian new world order is to act in accordance with an awakened new paradigm worldview. And one of the things they point out in the article is that conspirituality is a way for the tensions of a politically chaotic age to be soothed within the heart of the spiritual And it's important to remember, too, that this is a a paper you're talking about from 2011, correct? Yeah, so this is something that... Nine years ago. Yeah, so nine nine years years ago, ago, this phenomenon was being talked about already by these academics. And as Derek says, we we can trace the roots back further. And we come along now at this moment of global crisis where something about the global crisis has pushed the envelope of this conspirituality discourse into overdrive. And we were witnessing that all around us in terms of especially the social media feeds of, you know, anyone who was involved in the yoga and wellness space. And we might say, I think, too, that conspirituality reaches some sort of peak fever pitch with uh, the infiltration of QAnon into wellness spaces. It's not like that comes from nowhere. It has its own genealogy, but the ground is prepared for something like QAnon to explode, actually. Yeah, and the ground is prepared, perhaps we could say, for people new to the concept, the ground is prepared by uh, sort of propensity towards prophetic grand narratives, Uh, notions that we're heading towards some kind of omega point, some kind of shift into a whole new reality. The age of Aquarius is dawning. Some way in which there's a grand battle between light and darkness that we see goes all the way back at least 6,000 years ago to ancient Sumeria. Any, Any of these metaphysical notions about how what's happening on the earthly plane right now has its sort of reference point in some celestial revealed prophetic context. And, you know, I must confess that that idea is not too far-fetched to my way of thinking. I think that there there's a subtle dimension to everything and uh, that there's a lot of stuff going on in subtle dimensions and maybe some of it bubbles up to the surface. And I, I do feel like a paradigm shift is afoot. And I'm not uncomfortable with the term Great Awakening because I think maybe after this paradigm shift, if it is indeed yeah. happening, things will be very different and much better. These terms have and concepts have been appropriated by QAnon as the most extreme example, and then twisted and turned into something dark. It's a strange phenomenon, much as there's a reality to child sexual abuse 
And yet that concept was taken and misappropriated. And next thing you know, it's all the Democrats and movie stars that are doing it in underground tunnels and drinking the children's blood. And, you know, it turns into this really weird, bizarre thing. That's right. That's right. And I I just wanted to add, and thank you for for saying that, Rick, is that as with any set of mythopoetic symbols, any set of metaphysical kind of landmarks, how healthy, how integrated, how grounded in reality, how fluent one is able to be in terms of how you interpret the metaphor makes all the difference. And with the kind of pressure that we've been under, I think there's a certain percentage of people who've just popped over into this way of interpreting all of that stuff that is incredibly intense, to say the least, very preoccupying, very dark. We should point out, too, that the Great Awakening, I'm reading a 700-page history of the evangelical movement in America right now, and the Great Awakening was the term used for the first and the second Great Awakening in the 18th and 19th century. So there's a repetition of this idea that we're coming to some sort of point, right? And I would just add with the the subtle aspect of it, I I don't actually think it's so subtle. I think part of the problem is we've disconnected from our environment so much. And there's plenty of evidence that even minor shifts in temperature affect us greatly. So what I think a big part of that shift is, is just climate change. And we're reacting in ways that we don't even recognize because we are intertwined with our environment, as Alan Watts would say, We weren't born into this world. We grew up out of it. So, of course, the processes of nature are going to affect us socially, emotionally, and in every other capacity. And to your point as well, part of that prophetic preoccupation is that it's happening now. It's happening in our time, right? People always think that the the end of the world is coming while I'm alive, and Jesus is returning while I'm alive. Isn't it true that in the past when there have been major pandemics and other serious social problems, like, for instance, in... um, the 1930s in Germany, where there was incredible economic strife, that it's been a very ripe field for conspiracy theories to sprout. For sure. And certainly the cultural stressors are key. In some of our earlier episodes, we were really solid on the research in that regard, that it's pretty much understood that the conspiracy mindset satisfies at least three different particular needs amongst those who gravitate towards it. So there are, there are epistemic needs or the, the need to feel that one knows more than one's fellows or one knows what's coming. One is, one is secure or more secure because the mystery of life is a little bit less opaque. And then uh, there might be existential uh, needs as well, as in, you know, if I have this knowledge, I will actually survive some coming catastrophe. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the, you know, the social, the bonding needs where the, you know, the, the conspiratorial thinker can often find themselves a found family amongst the like-minded. To address that specifically, Rick, the Great Depression was, a, it didn't just affect America, it affected the entire planet. And countries like Italy and Germany responded with fascism. America responded with the New Deal. And so you see how the unfolding of history happens. How we respond now is going to dictate what happens in the future generations. And hopefully with the incoming administration, we'll have a better response. But 
given the last few years, we could see how very easily we can and still may slip into some sort of fascism or authoritarianism here. But you are absolutely right in that during pandemics, whenever the balance of life is thrown off in some capacity, the entire society is ripe for conspiratorial thinking at that moment. Can I just pick up on something, Rick, because we're at the beginning still of our discussion and I don't want this to get lost. And I also think it might frame the way we go on and talk about this. I didn't know until you said off the top that you were 71 years old. And that's just a couple of years younger than my father. I'm 49. And when you say that the paradigm shift as an idea, as a cultural narrative is something that has been resonant with you, I know that that's been true for, for many people in your generation. And I just want to, like, first of all, honor that, but also ask you maybe about what it feels like to see the hopefulness and the altruism and perhaps the idealism of that post-war period go through this transformation and, and weaponization in a way, because I might be projecting, but that's part of what I hear, even in you, you inviting us on. Well, ask me again if I don't answer your question properly. People never can envision how different the future might be. When they're, you know, if you were alive in 1860, you couldn't have possibly imagined what things are going to be like today. It would have been science fiction. And I feel like the pace of change has been increasing throughout our lifetimes. And so I fully expected things to change a lot during the course of my life. And I felt that there would necessarily be a tumultuous period as things were shifting, because if we are indeed to arrive at a more enlightened society somehow, there are a lot of entrenched things that will have to be shaken and dismantled. You know, I've been thinking this way since the 70s. Actually, not only me, but a lot of people, when this whole COVID thing started and everything else, I thought, well, maybe this is the big shakeup that we've been expecting. So you got your mantra in 1970 something 68 68 i mean that's like a real turning point for so many things and you've practiced it for 40 years 52 52 yeah my math is is off evidently there's a thread of hopefulness and altruism in there you're not our target audience let's say for our podcast Mm. and so a lot of people listening to us will say boy, you know, you're uncovering this sort of shadow side of the spiritual world or the spiritual industry that, you know, I've suspected was there for a long time. But it's just interesting that you would be an avid listener as well, because in a way, holding that mantra for 52 years, it signifies a lot of faith. And I imagine, I imagine a certain amount of hope as well. More really experience. The results for me were so immediate and so profound. And I mean, I was a high school dropout and druggy and so on. And my life turned around so dramatically that I was never, I mean, I didn't take any motivation to keep it going. But in what I do, interviewing spiritually awakening people and having interviewed hundreds of them and having eventually had to take some interviews down because of what got revealed about what people were up to, I've been into this scene for a long time, and I I realize that there are all sorts of shadow things and that everybody's a work in progress and many very half-baked. Right now, it's actually something that interests me, and you're the perfect person to ask this because I just published a book on psychedelic therapy. One thing in 1968 specifically that year that I found fascinating was that 
psychedelics are, you know, that was when it started to become illegal LSD and such. It wasn't a schedule yet, but that was coming. But that year, one in three American adults were on a tranquilizer or tried a tranquilizer. And I always find it fascinating that we look at, we look at the outliers. So we look at something like psychedelics, which is this huge mind expansion. It was very much entrenched in Woodstock and the spiritual communities at that time. But then the common American was being tranquilized at that time. I actually grew up in the town called Milltown, which was the popular one back at that time. It was just phasing out in about 68. So from your recollection of watching the spiritual growth and how things have shifted, how influential was the spiritual community at that era during that time compared to just everyone, you know, the common American? Oh, it's become a lot more mainstream. Back in the day when I started, there were only a few things to choose from. You could become a Hare Krishna or you could practice yoga of some sort or you could learn TM. There were just a handful of things. And now, you know, and it would be very rare to find some kind of yoga center in a town. But now, obviously, it's everywhere. And the very notion of meditation seemed weird back then. But now, it's, you know, it's practiced in corporate boardrooms and so on. Yeah, so come on. which is a good thing, I think. People practice it or get into spirituality for maybe certain mundane reasons, like maybe they want to lower their blood pressure, but eventually they just begin to discover that there's a lot more to it. So do you think that the spiritual community in general is more susceptible to conspiracy theories than the general population, which is also really into them these days? For instance, I have friends in Sedona who have told me that maybe three-quarters of the new agey type people there are into QAnon? And if so, if, if the spiritual community is more susceptible, why do you think that is? Matthew, you've already given a couple reasons, but maybe we can elaborate on it. Julian, that's your whole, that's your whole article. Yeah, yeah. My sense of it is that people who get involved in New Age spirituality tend to be very open to new experience. They tend to be seekers. They tend to be people who are finding a deep sense of meaning and community in a set of beliefs that are outside of the mainstream. So they tend to characterize themselves as being very skeptical and free-thinking and open-minded. As part of spirituality, as, as I'm sure you'll rec recognize, Rick, there's a, a tendency to see too much critical thinking as maybe blocking your capacity for being in your heart, for example, that science is really limited and that there are all sorts of things outside of science that have profound spiritual meaning that we should put our faith in or we should be open to in some way. So I think that, that the spiritual community was always, or spiritual communities, new age folks, people who are in the yoga and wellness space, tended to already be open to unusual ideas, to see belonging to groups of people who saw things differently than the quote-unquote mainstream as something really positive, to kind of blur the lines a lot between scientific evidence skepticism, critical thinking, and just wanting to believe things because they sound good, you know, and, and I'm being critical here, this is my speculation, or because they make me feel special and important. And I say that as someone who's been involved in spirituality since I was a teenager, that the, the idea of belonging to a group of people who are on the edge of humanity's knowledge, who are kind of leading the way into a, into a new age, who have, have access to secret esoteric understandings that the mainstream doesn't grasp. And therefore that dictates how we eat, what practices we do, what we believe, how we think about all sorts of different topics. I think that not only has made people susceptible to QAnon type ideas and to COVID denialism, but I think that 
there's an aspect of QAnon that was specifically crafted to appeal to people like us. There's also a very distinct overlap between the research accepted three components of any kind of conspiracy framework and New Age spirituality. Uh, Most scholars agree that the three sort of key points of the conspiratorial mindset are everything is connected, nothing happens by accident, and nothing is as it seems. And I agree with all three of those. (laughs) Well, exactly, exactly. And that's really kind of eerie to realize that you can utter the mantras of, of modern spirituality, a globalized spirituality, but also be feeding the processes of conspiracism. And I'd also say that we can speak about philosophical or psychological propensities or vulnerabilities to conspirituality. But we also have to look at the money and the organization of the influencers involved. I always argue that the yoga world and the wellness worlds are tinderboxes for conspirituality and QAnon because they are organized through a kind of charismatic influencer matrix that is unregulated, right? And so we have, and this has happened from the 1960s onwards, and it's been escalated and accentuated by social media, of course, we have charismatic figureheads who don't really have clearly defined scopes of practice, who become prominent in their fields which aren't themselves clearly defined and are often taken to be experts in other fields as well, who build up followings through their content that require renovation over and over and over again. There always has to be something new, something, some new kind of diet, some new spiritual practice that is being revealed, uh, a new channeled teaching, the next workshop, the next level. There's always this sort of tiered sense of continual and necessary self-improvement that never really ends. And what grows up in the economy of that is that the production companies and the media platforms that make money through this content generally link influencers together through affiliate deals that create very bonded relationships that then allow messaging to sort of like instantly horizontally spread through networks. So it's not just that Christiane Northrup has 500,000 followers on Facebook when she talks about the Great Awakening and the ascension from 3D to 5D consciousness and how, you know, the vaccines are filled with luciferase and so they're going to inject the new world order and stuff like that. It's not just her 500,000 followers. It's everybody who's sharing and feeding and working with and involved with Hay House, who publishes her books. We had a guest on, Rebecca Baruki who actively is calling upon her former publisher now, Hay House, to reconsider their support for authors who are either spreading COVID denialism or Q-adjacent material because it's simply harmful and it's specifically harmful to people of color. And she's made very passionate statements. A number of people have joined in with that. It's very difficult to get the colleagues of somebody like Christiane Northrup to say, you know what, I'm going to make a statement against this stuff because usually what's going on is that Christiane has blurbed my book or I help affiliate for her online courses or something like that. And so there's real financial risk actually in being the person to ideologically 
reject a piece of content within this juggernaut. I think it was Upton Sinclair who said it's very hard to get a man to believe something if his salary depends upon not believing it. There you go. Yeah. 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 And this is also why it's been astonishing, but also very predictable to see that over the nine months of the pandemic, influencers, health and wellness and spiritual influencers who have come out as either COVID denialists or as QAnon adjacent, we don't know of a single person who has walked anything back. Mm-hmm. We don't know of a single person who has said, you know what? Actually, um, you know, I was wrong about the mask thing. And uh, it looks like the science on aerosolization just wasn't fully formed yet. And oh boy, you know, I'm really sorry that I spread a bunch of out of my lane, totally unqualified opinions about epidemiology when I'm a, like a singing bowls guy. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry that I did that. And I, we haven't seen a single, is that, am I right about that, guys? We haven't seen a single person walk anything back. No. And, and but that, I, I want to just... just hubris. That's not just hubris. It's also, it would cost them. It would cost them in network relationships. You're circling around there one other point that I think is pertinent to Rick's question, which is just basic scientific illiteracy in the spiritual yeah, communities. Totally. And, and you'll see it over and over again. I just listened to the Kyle Kingsbury, J.P. Sears podcast for research for next week's Conspirituality. And at every turn, it's just anti-science, except when they cherry pick a little one study that fits their viewpoint and then they bolster it up and then they're promoting Joseph Mercola as the ideal science guy in this episode. And it just really shows and that that goes across the board. More than selling supplements. The science that would support their supplements if they're selling supplements on podcasts. I mean, I mean, he sells on his, I don't know about Kingsbury, but like, Well, that was actually a, I think that's a very pertinent point to this discussion was that Kyle mentions that how are we going to trust a COVID vaccine that only has three months of data? And yet his podcast is sponsored by a company called Onnit that is a supplement. It's a nootropic, but basically a supplement company that has done, as far as I'm aware, one clinical trial that they sponsored and then released the data, which we all know the troubles with that. And then there's no long-term efficacy for any of these nootropics. And so you have this, again, it's this cherry picking. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to make money off this podcast by selling this, but then I'm going to go over here and say this 40,000 person trial is just nonsense. Not strong enough. Not strong enough. I'm going to stay with my biohacking where I'm, you know, making (laughs) all sorts of radical lifestyle changes based on no evidence whatsoever. Some of it is scientific illiteracy and, and some of it is just bro science. I'm going to draw on whatever sciencey sounding language supports this idea of how to be a kind of superhuman Adonis. Let me riff for a second on some of the points we've covered and have you guys chew on it after that. It seems to me that the whole spiritual endeavor is to discover something which is hidden. Pure consciousness is hidden, subtle realms, if, if people are interested in angels or channeling, all that, that stuff is hidden. So there's this sentiment that the hidden stuff is more true than the obvious stuff. And yeah, something that can be discovered through some kind of experience, right? Or some kind of process. And as, as with yourself and, and all, all of us, I think, have, have experienced in our own ways, though not, probably not for as long and as deeply as you have, through a practice that you apply yourself to, you're discovering aspects of your being and perhaps of reality that before you didn't know about, right? Yeah. And so if the idea is that the hidden stuff is true, then mm-hmm. I think it, it's not a big step from there to think that, well, anything else that's alleged to be hidden 
must also be true or might also be true. Rhymes, right? Yeah. And so there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that refer to the cabal or the Illuminati or all kinds of hidden stuff. And people buy into that. There's some justification for that because, I mean, if you read a book like, um, I don't know, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, or, you know, there have been many horrible things that have been hidden from us. There are real conspiracies. They're exposed through good journalism, good scholarship, evidence, well-reasoned arguments. And then there are what get named as conspiracy theories that it's not just a, a matter of subjective opinion. They tend to be cobbled together from very weak evidence, lots of logical fallacies, lots of leaps, speculative paranoid leaps in the explanatory style that don't actually add up when you look at them carefully enough. And I think what links up to what you're asking or what you're sort of riffing on goes back to something Matthew said before he changed the subject and went, and went in even deeper about patterns and, and everything is connected, right? Everything happens for a reason. Nothing is as it seems. There is good research. Uh, well, there is some interesting research, I should say, that people whose brains tend to produce more dopamine, we tend to be more on the side of the spectrum that has a, a particular relationship to dopamine, have a greater likelihood to see patterns where there isn't really a pattern. And we get excited about finding patterns. And pattern, pattern-seeking behavior and pattern recognition is something that has huge evolutionary survival value for us, for all, for all human beings, right? Uh, but some of us are more on this, that side of the spectrum than others. And when you, when you start to see patterns that you become very excited about as showing you hidden information, that is framed then as having some sort of absolute spiritual significance, you're in very interesting territory at that point. And my question is always, is it possible to have an integrated relationship to contemplative experience or spiritual exploration, awareness practices, such that what you discover through the experiential process doesn't automatically get literalized as being somehow absolutely true in an unassailable way that doesn't require any evidence in the world outside of your meditation chamber. Yeah. There's a famous quote from the Buddha, which you guys might get more precisely, but it's something like, don't believe something just because somebody says it. Even if I say it, the Buddha is saying, scrutinize, use your intellect, use your common sense. The tricky part in all of this is that the idealizing of direct personal subjective experience as a doorway into ultimate spiritual truths that then imply and translate over into the world outside of your revelatory experience, that's a sleight of hand that I think all of us in the spiritual community would do well to to step back from and ask some really good epistemological questions. How do we know what's true? How do we categorize these different domains? As far as I'm concerned, do as much yoga, as much meditation, as much psychedelics, lie in the, in the isolation chamber, like go deep into all of that, but stay clear about the relationships between these different domains. Just because I say I had a direct experience that shows me that 5G is coming and the reptilian overlords need to be overthrown and they're working through the cabal that is sacrificing children and drinking their blood, that's a, a claim of revelation. Let's find out if it's actually true in the world. There are ways to find that out. And that's why I, I want to I come back, uh, Julian, and just pick up the thread around how is the real conspiracy unraveled? And, you know, one of the things that we try to do on the podcast is, is hew to like really specific 
standards for evidence, which means we're going to check sources. We're going to make sure we go to primary sources as much as we can. There's nothing that we publish anywhere that we can't stand behind through the process of fact-checking that we put ourselves through. And a lot of people don't understand that Derek's been doing journalism for longer than I have. But when I submit a feature investigation to, you know, the Walrus Magazine or to Gen by Medium, every single sentence is footnoted sometimes twice. And then there's a professional fact checker that is going to be emailing me constantly for two weeks about every single one of those footnotes. And then they're going to be calling my interview subjects to verify that what they heard in the tape was actually what they really intended to say. And so one of the ways in which conspirituality works is that it's either ignorant of that entire process, that people actually do have modes of finding out a reasonable set of facts about something, or it just doesn't want to accept the fact that there are standards for doing that because it wants to rely on internal experience just too much. And then the other thing that I wanted to pick up about what you were saying about the things that are hidden, I had this job in a coffee shop when I was probably 15 years old, and some guy who I think was smoking a lot of grass at the time, we went for a walk after we closed down at night, or no, we were cleaning up and he picked up a spoon. I'm sure he was high. He picked (laughs) up a spoon and he said, have you ever thought about how much this actually costs? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the cafe owner probably bought it for 75 cents, but like how much does it actually cost? Like if you could tally up the human labor and ingenuity and the machines that put this into production and the ore that went into it and all of the history and the labor and the blood, sweat and tears and all of the, like he just gave this sort of genealogy of the spoon that made me see that the value assigned to it actually denies its reality as a beautiful thing. And I think there was something that clicked that moment for me about the fact that I'm being told by spirituality all the time that there is something mysterious that is hidden. I'm told that by psychology as well. But I think what's more closer to my heart actually is the fact that I don't look at the spoon really closely enough. I don't look at where it comes from. I don't really write its history or take it into me. And I just use it in this blind fashion. And, you know, it reminds me of what my late friend Michael Stone used to say, which is that we don't need to be less materialistic. We need a deeper form of materialism. And I think that if we actually pay attention to the things that we can actually see, the things that that can be verified, that's another pathway for spirituality that might be less vulnerable to things like QAnon. But even then, to pay more attention to the things we actually see implies a deeper appreciation of them. And the deeper appreciation isn't just how they're manufactured or where the minerals came from and all that stuff. In my terminology, it has to do more with appreciating the divine that's inherent in every particle of creation and the intelligence that you can see operative if you think about what you're actually looking at. It's just mind-boggling and awe-inspiring. Maybe we're talking about the same thing, and you're using the term divine, and I'm talking about the wonderment of all of this causal details. Yeah. And actually, really, we're in the same form of wonderment, right? Yes. I, I know that one of you is calls yourself an atheist, and I would probably say that I don't believe in the same God you don't believe in, but I wouldn't call <laughs> myself an atheist because I feel like every little particle of creation is just 
pervaded by and orchestrated by some kind of very profound intelligence. But well, this is a little off the beam of our whole topic not, here. Not really. Not really. You, came out, you came out as a TM guy, so it's. I think it's on point. <laughs> okay. I would just counter because I'm the atheist here. <laughs> okay. I very much take Stephen Batchelor's approach to compare to Buddhism. Of, and I think it does become a, a matter of terms because Julian and I actually talk a lot about V.S. Ramachandran, who is one of our favorite neuroscientists, who speaks poetically and elegantly and eloquently about the wonder of our brain when you think about the poetry of science. And that's something that gets overlooked. I do want to take off on Matthew's point, though, because I understand what you're saying about seeing the wonderment in things, but I, I think the spiritual community in general could be a little better served if they looked at that supply chain. The Guardian about a year ago released an investigative story about crystals and how crystals that sell for $1,000 in the U.S. that are presented as this spiritual auric tool that will help people achieve their spirituality. Well, the people that are mining them in Africa are getting paid less than a dollar for that crystal and a lot of child labor and a high number of deaths to produce that crystal. So when you look at it from that sense, where is the spiritual aspect of it? And that, that's something that personally I concern myself a little bit more with, because if you want to understand the foundations of something, you should know the origins and where it comes from. Yeah. Let me just say as, as a follow-on from that, that you know, one of the things I said in, in my little introduction that I've been really fascinated with because, you know, I'm a yoga teacher, I'm a meditation teacher, I'm as invested in interior contemplative work as, as I think any of us, is spiritual bypass. What I started to see for myself in my own process and then in the people around me over time, probably over the last 20 years, is that spiritual bypass is a very compelling, soothing, captivating thing to get wrapped up in. And often we're doing it unconsciously. There's an avoidance of everything about reality, everything about being human from the psychological to the political, to the economic realities that were just being discussed. There's a bypassing of all of that and an attempt to just be in the bliss and just be in the divine revelation and just be in the deep knowingness of the perfection of everything as it is. And very rarely do I talk to someone who talks that kind of game who can tolerate me saying something like, what about the five-year-old kid who gets leukemia? What about the sexual abuse trauma? What about the Holocaust? And it's fine. If you can reckon all of that and hold it in an integrated way, kudos to you. But I rarely find that. And that's a telltale sign that spiritual bypass is going on. Yeah. And, you know, I think we have to add too that I don't think anybody's done this yet, but uh, Wellwood's framework for spiritual bypassing really has to be, I think, revisioned now in terms of how it's technologically expanded. Because, you know, if you take if you take spiritual communities online and you start delivering spiritual content online within this format that's actually designed for dissociation, that's designed yeah. for this like frictionless leaving of your body and the isolation of your, you know, in front of your screen, you've really doubled down on something. It's like you've extracted the worst possible outcome from the content in a somatic sense through the participation aspect of the technology. Yeah. And so then we, we maybe touch briefly on something like a platform like Gaia TV. We'll just have endless 
choice of all manner of different fantastical conspiracy theories and, and, you know, history channel wild stuff. Instead of doom scrolling, you can like bliss scroll, but the impact is the same, right? The impact is the same, but even though you're bliss scrolling, this is where the hinge is, right? The stuff that you're finding, and this is true of a lot of the figures that we cover, the stuff that you're finding is inspiring and it has spiritual overtones, but it also has all kinds of other stuff in there that is yeah, incredibly dark, uh, incredibly yeah, horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would, but you wouldn't. It's a combination of doom and bliss scrolling, isn't it? Because you, yeah. because you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be punching the David Icke uh, video unless you were terrified of something. So there's there's something else that is very weird and manipulative within conspirituality, which is this double-handed give and take thing where the influencer is on one hand, always trying to scare the shit out of you. And on the other hand, trying to make you feel like a million bucks or that you're loved or welcome or something like that. And the best example that we had of this in real time was like Mickey Willis releasing on May 5th or May 4th or whatever it is, the first pandemic movie and everybody, you know, shitting their pants over it. And then the next day he goes on his Facebook and he just gazes into the camera and he says, everybody, I, I know that you're so, it's a hard time. And uh, I just want you to know that I'm with you. And all of this, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he set himself up as the consoler, the spiritual counselor for the people who he had scared crapless, right? That's almost like a mathematically sound marketing technique. Absolutely. I'm going to traumatize you and then make you need me because I've traumatized you. But the thing that you left out in that description is he looked into the camera with those steely blue eyes and said, I am willing to die for this. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Even within the love poem to the audience, there was this weird veiled suicidality that can only feel apocalyptic and can only be emotionally manipulative. Well, it's also self-aggrandizing because if what I'm saying is so important and right, so- That I'm willing to die for, right. The power structure that they're, they might kill me because right, I said exactly. the things I've said to you, right. but yeah. I'm, I'm so brave. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would die of shame if I made that film. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's segue a bit here. We can always just keep moving around to whatever topics come to mind. But I have a question, a few questions that came in from Felix in Bangkok. What steps to take when dealing with loved ones who become conspiracy theory believers so that you can, A, keep a healthy relationship with them, and B, you don't enable them, but you actually help them? Wow, that's Most great. Most deceived question. Yeah. And, you know, we did an episode, maybe is it number six or seven with uh, Steve Hassan, who's like a cult recovery expert. While you were getting your mantra, uh, Rick, he was joining the Unification Church and becoming a, a recruiter for the Moonies. And he got himself out of that. That's actually his hashtag now. I got out. Um, <laughs> and actually he's, he's become kind of a, you know, a more well-known figure because people are asking him this question precisely about their family members who have gotten sucked into QAnon and so on. But he argues and a lot of the cult recovery experts like uh, Rachel Bernstein and John Jalalich and other people argue that if you know the person well, you are responsible for remembering the person they were before they got red-pilled. And you can actually hold that secure relationship 
as much as you can. Or if you can, it's really good because the, the brain worm, the community that surrounds it, perhaps even if there's cultic dynamics going on, it's offering a false sense of security. It's a false safe haven. It's not actually going to stand by them. We can even see this now as Q hasn't posted for like 19 days at this point. Main influencers within QAnon are just tearing each other to shreds. They're not friends. They never were. They were opportunistically affiliated within a cultic structure. And so if you're the friend of somebody who gets sucked into that influence, you're the person who can actually continue to show friendship, not enabling them. That's really complicated. I think uh, the best line yeah. that you're missing, though, from Steve was to have some cookies ready for them when they return. Yeah, because he actually tells that story from his uh, recovery that he was deprogrammed back in the day when people were still doing that very dangerous operation, which didn't work out often. And his next door neighbor asked no questions. The bubby across the street just welcomed him back and said, we were really worried about you and here are some cookies. And he was able to start his life again. And that doesn't make it easy, right? Doesn't make it easy. But for listeners who want to know more about how people are struggling with this and working this out, they can go to the subreddit called QAnon Casualties. I just looked today and it's now got 50,000 members These are people who are talking with each other and sharing their stories about what has happened to their family members who have gotten sucked into QAnon or into various conspirituality schemes uh, and how they're managing and what resources they're finding. So, yeah, it's a growing body of literature and it's super, super hard. Yeah, and I would also just say to Felix, part of what we've discovered, and, and a lot of this comes from talking to Steve Hassan, is that it's it's helpful to realize that you're not going to talk them out of it. They've gotten sucked into something very deep. It has a lot of emotional significance for them. So arguing with them is probably not the way to go. Talk to them about other things. Talk to them about their lives, about the real world, about the things you have in common. Stay connected if they're important to you. Keep being the empathic connection between them and the real world that's going on while they're caught up in this you know hallucinatory thing and that and that said you've got to keep safe as well like yes. i know families that are torn apart because somebody has been influenced by QAnon to become a covid denialist and they're actually endangering their extended family members by refusing to take precautions it's incredible what do you do the recovery theory says maintain the secure bond but the virus just screws all of that up sure. at some yeah. point you got to isolate, too, in certain yeah. circumstances. No easy calls, for sure. Here's a second question from Felix, which we've sort of covered, but I think maybe we can say a bit more. He says, I know intelligent, empathic, well-read, spiritual people who've fallen prey to right-wing conspiracy nonsense. Is there a clear set of attributes that cause one to be susceptible to these conspiracy theories? I think Julian has pointed out a number of the kind of philosophical, psychological vulnerabilities. But to the extent that people get roped into QAnon or into the sphere of a charismatic influencer who is pushing COVID denialism, uh, it's really helpful to know that in the cult research, there aren't solid predictors for who is vulnerable or who gets recruited. But What is acknowledged is that when anybody is going through a period of what's called situational vulnerability, you've been through a divorce, there's been a death in the family, you've lost your job, you've had to move, stuff like that, 
that's a point at which the safe haven of the new community, the new worldview, you know, the transcendent ideology and the radiant charismatic figure can look really attractive. And that does a lot of work to explain why a global pandemic is the flashpoint for the logarithmic expansion of conspirituality. It's just the perfect setup because everybody is basically situationally vulnerable. And continuing on what I said before, I think along with scientific illiteracy, you have to consider political illiteracy. And in America, we can live in a country where you don't ever really have to vote and none of your freedoms will be taken away because of that. So there's a certain sense of privilege and luxury that Americans have had where they could check out. One field that I've covered repeatedly over the years for a big think is the differences between collectivist and individualist cultures. And there is no perfect culture, of course, but collectivist cultures, and he's writing from Thailand and a lot of Asian cultures are specifically collectivist. I think he's Swiss, but he's living in Thailand, but go go ahead. Okay. Well, yeah. um, uh, My wife is Thai, so I, I very much appreciate the culture. These cultures at least have a recognition that their actions are never for them alone. Mm. It's how does it affect the community. And that's not saying that people in these cultures don't get pulled into conspiracy theories or anything of that nature. But there is a a shared sense of suffering and a shared sense of liberation that exists in certain cultures. And that doesn't exist in America. And that's why I think this is the place where QAnon would have started. And now we can see it obviously spreading out. Where does it spread out to predominantly? Australia, London, Germany, very individualist cultures. And then from there, it'll go on. I've heard that as an explanation of why things have gone pretty well in South Korea and Japan and places like that, because people have this sense of community and less individualism. So they've actually cooperated with the authorities who wanted to put tracking devices on their phones and get them to wear masks and and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing I wanted to add was that aside from the cultural analysis and the broad strokes that we can, we can point there, we can paint there. I think it's really good to acknowledge that the, if we're talking about the vulnerability of spiritual and wellness communities to this stuff, it's really good to understand that these economies have grown in tandem with the escalation of neoliberal politics from the 1970s onwards, which have emphasized individualism, self-care and self-responsibilism rely less and less upon the notion of the common good because we don't know actually know that it's going to be there because we're moving into a techno-utopia in which everybody's needs are going to be fulfilled. And so we don't need labor unions anymore because robots are coming and so on and so forth. Entrepreneurial hustle. Right, exactly. And so just consider this. This this comes from something that I was working on years ago if we just think about what yoga represents as a spiritual practice focused upon physical culture that explodes in popularity from the 80s on, what does it value? It values flexibility, receptivity, the ability to be resilient, the ability to become strong and independent and you know salute the sun and build internal fire and heat and all of these great things that are actually ideal for a more and more hyper-individualist society and ideal for a new economic class of gig workers, i.e. yoga teachers, who aren't going to depend upon their employers for benefits, who aren't going to ask that they unionize, who aren't going to 
there's this whole generation of people whose spirituality is defined by a kind of individualist economics and politics. And it's like, you know, yoga is this perfect religion for a sociology and, and an economy that is basically you've got to take care of yourself and you have to be flexible and you have to flow with whatever comes, right? Because we're not going to take care of you. You've got to take care of yourself. And part of that too, in terms of the being in the yoga community, because I've worked in it, in it here in LA for 25 years, is that there's this crossover where very often your employer is also kind of your spiritual teacher, and, <laughs> right. right? There's no unions and there's, you have no recourse. Everything is negotiated just between you and your guru, so to speak, or the person who has your, both your spiritual and your financial well-being in the palm of their hand. So you're not going to push back against the fact that really what I started to realize is that a lot of studio owners were giving yoga teachers the worst of both worlds. On all the things where you would want independence, you work for me and you and you better stay in line. And on all the things where they should be taking care of you while you're on your own, you're an independent contractor. Uh, really, really not good. But I wanted to pick up on, on what Derek was saying a moment ago too, which is that in a privileged society where a lot of spiritual people are going to be going into spiritual bypass, part of what's bypassed is politics. And so when something like this happens and conspiracy theories come along that have a lot of political content what you have is a group of people with an openness to new experience and new information who like feeling like they're in on a secret that's hidden, who are not fluent in politics and are suddenly hearing all of this alt-right political stuff and not knowing how to process it and buying into it because it's wrapped up in a package of spiritual sounding material. Or they literally spiritualize it with like yeah. the channeler Lori Ladd going on and on about how Trump is a light worker instead yeah. of mobster politician who accidentally <laughs> got elected. I think that you're right. It's like politics and real political consequence in the world yeah. gets filtered through this imagistic, mythopoetic, archetypal Jungian thing where Kamala Harris becomes a symbol of something. Yes, instead exactly. of, and, instead and of I, somebody, instead of a prosecutor with a track record that you can find. Exactly. You know, it's and, amazing. and we, we covered it on the, on the podcast, but there was something we didn't mention, you know, when we talked about that and, and sorry, Rick, there's a little inside, but it, 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 it'll be interesting to you. And I know you've listened. Um, when we talked about the gathering, the prayer meeting for Trump on election night, right. And one of the things that was said in that prayer that everyone was like a hoeing to and doing the ayahuasca breath to and, you know, very, very earnestly kind of. Oh, this was the thing with Mickey Willis and J.P. Sears and somebody else. Yes. Was that uh, we know and we affirm now that all of the ways in which you have appeared to be someone who is ignoble in all of these different ways that characterize Trump was absolutely necessary for the plan, for the divine coming together of the what we are all involved in right now and that was and, just astonishing and you can and you can see if we're talking about people who have spiritual community or ashram experience in that room in ashram in, in that room in in austin you can see that actually framing the fact that you know donald trump is a sexual predator that there's there's all of these these allegations against him that has to be like transformed but in a way that is understood by this crowd as being both not real, but appealing because it appears to be real, but appealing to a certain demographic that it wouldn't work for otherwise. Well, they, re- so- they keep referring to him as a 5D chess player, and he's <laughs> playing against a bunch of rubes who are actually, they think they're yeah. playing checkers. 
Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Everything about him that appears to be incompetent and venal and, it's, and it's just, intentional, you know, amoral is actually all a trickster, brilliant manipulation. And didn't we do the same thing with Osho? And don't we do yeah. the same thing with Chogyam Trungpa? And That's don't right. we do That's the right. same thing with Swami Vishnadevananda? These are people who are absolute wrecks of human beings, obviously, and on the surface, with no self-control, totally incontinent. They're abusing everybody around them. And the buzz around them is completely reversed. And, and it has to be, because otherwise, the cognitive dissonance of the community would just be overwhelming. Yeah. They, they would have strokes. Jogim was delirious because of his alcoholism and, and the people around him were saying that he was experiencing subtle realms. Right, right. Yeah, and that he was communicating with the Rigdons and hallucinating uh, Shambhala into existence. He was dead drunk and everybody knew he was. Everybody knew he was. You know, and his lieutenants are, are feeding him bumps of cocaine and they're telling the lieutenants that don't know that that it's some mystical substance from Tibet? It's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> Let me pop a question in here, which relates to what we've just been talking about. This is from Sarah in Reykjavik, Iceland. She says, um, do you think sensationalist media like Fox News has played a part in creating a subculture that is more susceptible to being taken in by conspiracy theories? What is the role of the media in shaping viewers' capacity to weigh facts and arrive at logical conclusions? Well, let me, media has been my field for almost 30 years. And one point I want to make first off is that one trigger that I have during this whole time, and I've had for years, is there's no such thing as the mainstream media. These are dozens and hundreds of competing organizations who are all trying to get consumer attention. So the idea that there is one unified media that's controlling the narrative, that's just laziness. That's journalistic laziness because they'll just, there's certain organizations that will just run with the story without doing the proper fact checking behind it. That being said, yeah, the media is influential there. I mean, but the media has always been played that role in some capacity. If you look at the history of media over the last number of centuries, there's never been a time where they weren't controlling the narrative or in cahoots with either the government or with businesses. That's that's just always been the case. So you have something. What I think is the more interesting question right now, specific to Fox News, is how it's being cannibalized because they became slightly critical of some of the things that, that actually Joe Biden did win the presidency. And then you can see how quickly it turns on them. In case people didn't catch that, Fox News began to acknowledge that Biden had won. And yeah. all of a sudden, people began leaving them in droves Raiders. and going to Parler and One World News or whatever it's called. One America. Yeah. One America and, News. And that's one thing that I think everyone has to realize. We reach a good amount of listeners. We've been growing exponentially since we launched, and it's been nice. But compared to the people we cover who have millions of ears, they are the media. So when JP Sears, when Mickey Willis, when these people come out and say the media, the media, they are media too. They are producing in the same way that they are. So the influence, that's that's the fascination about the digital age is that the influence, it really is just about capturing eyeballs. And if you're capturing millions of eyeballs, you're media as well. Yeah. yeah. And to speak specifically to sensationalism within the question, I just think back to Noam Chomsky in Manufacturing Consent, being asked a question on television about the capacity to communicate cogent narratives or cogent ideas. And he basically starts his answer by saying, well, the problem with television as a format is that I don't think that a complex idea can be explored in less than about eight minutes. 
And usually we have commercial breaks interrupting at five minute intervals. And he's in the middle of explaining this and they interrupt him. (laughs) Go to the commercial. That's back in the 1990s or maybe even the, the late 1980s. And I think that one of the things that that obviously has happened is that print journalism has been reduced in terms of its investigative capacity. There's less money for it. As somebody who writes regularly four to 5,000 words for payment, it's harder and harder to get those contracts. But also news media has become memefied. It has become reduced to sloganeering, to color splashes, to aphorisms. And it really meets its peak reductionism in the meme economy of the 4chan network, which is kind of like if you boil down the hot takes of Fox News down to their essence, you wind up with 4chan memes. And so there's a reductionistic and sensationalistic project that has nothing to do really with the communication of complex ideas or the betterment of society or accountability. All of the the function of it is provocation. I really appreciate yeah. the question. It, it, I, it absolutely plays into what I we've got going on. thing too is that I I feel like with the the advent of the twenty four hour news cycle, with cable news becoming so dominant, you no longer just have relatively neutral news broadcasts that everyone is watching on the major channels. Suddenly, you have these cable channels which end up becoming more and more polarized in their political editorializing and in their continuous breaking news cycle sensationalist bullshit, right? Where they're telling you the same story from a slightly different angle every few minutes and saying that it's new or going to press too quickly with something that that they, they haven't really checked out or, or verified that's still a developing story. So you have all of that. And then on top of that, we're in this collision between what I see as postmodern relativism coming from the left, where what is truth? What is a fact? Everything is merely a perspective. It all d- depends on what you believe and all manner of different things like that, colliding with this whole notion that anything I don't like on the right must be fake news. And Trump has played a huge role in that in terms of discrediting the media and pulling all of the standard dictator tactics around how to relate to news media so as to make people not believe them when they report the truth about his various peccadilloes. And that actually is a, is a perfect setup then for a new age community that wants to believe various things and we'll see, especially around, say, alternative medicine, and we'll see any scientific pushback against that as being some kind of way of suppressing the truth that me and the people in my community all believe. Facts, evidence, truth, all of these things start to become very fuzzy. An interesting question came in from someone named Wesley in Oregon. He said, uh, what is the responsibility of seekers in communities to keep them healthy and accountable Rick, I have heard you and others in panel discussions discuss the importance of seekers speaking up when things are getting unhealthy. I agree, and yet I wonder how realistic it is to expect seekers to do that. Seekers are often not psychologically integrated and might not feel strong enough to speak up. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a responsibility of teachers, and it's a responsibility of the organizations. We're in an unregulated Wild West in terms of spirituality. But unfortunately, it's usually the teachers that are getting unhealthy. (laughs) That's right. They're going off the rails. and uh, Having some kind of organizational accountability, having some kind of power structure within which which complaints can be brought and within which, you know, people people have peer-to-peer review and perhaps even that they're accountable to someone above them. I think that. 
I'll be totally frank about this one, though. I spent three years writing a book about institutional abuse in Ashtanga Yoga. I've published on institutional abuse in Shivananda Yoga, in Shambhala International. I've followed the Rigpa International story very closely, Dharma Ocean, many, many others, Satyananda Yoga. I have yet to see any meaningful reform. We've even gotten to the point with some organizations where independent uh, investigators have been hired to uh, do extensive interviewing to look into you know widespread abuses. I haven't seen any meaningful reform in yes. spiritual institutions at all. The Me Too movement has blown through the yoga world and the Buddhist world and kind of rearranged the furniture is what happened. And so what that leaves us with is survivors who have lost their spiritual homes, apologists who are hanging on by a thread, and then people who are reform-minded but don't really have any tools to work with. And I think it all comes down to the fact that the spiritual leader of the Buddhist organization or the yoga organization is at a level of professional and social capital wherein any other industry, they would be regulated, not by their own denomination, but by actually their peers. I can't see how there would be clear, functional, consistent, and reasonable, and also predictable in the sense that the leader knows that somebody is going to hold them to account and yeah. what the penalties are going to be for committing clerical sexual abuse or committing financial fraud or something like that. Unless all of those things are known as well as they are known, let's say, by the members of a state college of psychotherapists or a state college of medical doctors or a state college of massage therapists, without those regulations... I don't see how any kind of responsibility will be exertable because it generally comes from the outside. And when institutions have generations of abuse, there's always going to be cultic dynamics. And the thing that glues the cult together is the elimination of external input, information, and authority. And that's exactly what a college of psychotherapy for the province of Ontario destroys because it says we are an outside authority and yep. everybody belongs to each other. We're going to make sure that you don't make the name of psychotherapy substituting the word Buddhism into a pile of crap in the, in the broader public eye. How much do you know, Matthew, we've never talked about this, uh, about Spirit Rock and what Jack Cornfield and a lot of his colleagues have done over there? Well, I think what they've done is they've done the best work that they can do in a kind of isolated and aspirational and non-regulatory format. You know, it's okay. like they've identified charismatic abuse. They've identified scope of practice for their teachers. They've laid out a good code of ethics and so on. And that's all great. But still, it's not like their teachers belong to a mm. kind of socially or publicly recognized profession. Yeah, professional association where they have a license that's on the line. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, let me give an example. Manuso Manos taught at the top tier of Iyengar yoga for 30 years or something like that. In 1992, there was an investigative journalism report published by the San Jose Mercury News that showed that he was a chronic sexual abuser of his students. He never denied the charges. There was no legal challenge to the article. It was all fact-checked. I talked to the journalist who wrote that article, Bob Frost. My point is, if there had been a state of California license that permitted him to teach yoga in 1992, he would have lost it. Yeah. 
there was nothing that was done except there was some internal turmoil about the shame involved. And, you know, here is a leader of our community who was sidelined for a while, but he didn't materially lose anything. And wouldn't you know, he comes back and by 2018 and 19, he gets busted for the same behavior, which probably never stopped throughout his career. There were no consequences. He could have lost his license. And so when I consulted for the Yoga Alliance on this very issue, like, why are you not taking a regulatory stance? I said, you have to prove to the public that it was okay to allow Manusomanos to continue to teach yoga after it was found by good investigative journalism that he was basically committing clerical sexual abuse. Unless you can show that that's a good choice. No, no, it's not. Yoga is a different thing. It's not really a profession. It's not really therapy. We don't really have to be above board about it because it's about our hearts and it's about our emotions. As long as we have that attitude, abuses will continue because nothing will really check it. Good point. And that's a whole nother wing of my interest, you know, having helped to found the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which we right. we originally named it the Association for Professional Spiritual Teachers. And there was some discussion of comparing us to the AMA or, you know, American Psychological Association or something, which do grant and revoke licenses. And we realized that as a tiny little fledgling organization with no funding, that was way above our pay grade. But theoretically, is something that could evolve over time. A bit of regulation might be a healthy thing and not a repressive one. And, you know, in certain industries, there's the money to do it, right? There's no doubt that with the membership income of an organization like Yoga Alliance, that that some kind of coordinated effort to, you know, put teeth into the certification uh, and to coordinate with local officials would, would be something. Um, Let me ask another question from Felix. I'm going to put this one in my own words. This is Felix's last question. He was kind of convinced at some point of some conspiracy theories because there were so many reputable people putting their reputations on the line and telling similar stories. So I can think of the Great Barrington Declaration or various doctors such as Zach Bush who have come out and said things and lends an air of credibility and authority to the things they're saying, obviously. I just took a guy's interview down a couple of weeks ago for pushing QAnon. He just sent me an email today with all sorts of citations like that of various um oh you have to tell us who it was i'll tell you later (laughs) (laughs) i'll even send you the email he sent me so that confuses people well you're talking about the argument from authority Right. right so that essentially whether or not an argument makes sense is measured by who it is that's saying it and what their qualifications are and to some extent that's inevitable and that's a good thing to do you should consider the source but regardless of who the person is if the argument is riddled with logical fallacies and doesn't make sense and asks you to believe all sorts of fantastical things and goes against scientific consensus, you might want to... Yeah. A, a lot of times the person what? might be a doctor, but they're not a virologist or an epidemiologist. Right. And, and, right. so, and so like people used to ask... Yeah, people used to ask Einstein stuff all the time that had nothing to do with physics because they figured he was so smart he would know about this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> he often deferred... And celebrities are human. That's the thing we forget. That's how we got a President Trump. He was a reality show star. In that sense, it's kind of Occam's razor. It's really that simple. 
he was in people's faces and people just because of that, people thought that he had some level of authority that he never actually had. And so that just that we have this cult of celebrity that's perpetual. And when people get a certain sense of stature, we just start applying all sorts of ideas. I can't tell you, especially since we started the podcast, but as a journalist who's active on social media, I've kind of been public for a long time. And I can't tell you how many emails or messages we get where people are just making assumptions about us because they hear us and they relate to us in some way. One of the beauties of the media is that we can talk to each other in this capacity, but you can't conflate your own thoughts with other people. And we see that happen all the time. You know, the question of whether or not somebody like Zach Bush or Kelly Brogan or Christiane Northrup are risking their careers or putting their reputations on the line is super interesting. And it's something that I've sort of tracked from the beginning of this process. It's hard to tell what the kind of turnaround or the revolving door on Northrop's 500,000 followers are. Is she losing people who value critical thinking, but gaining people who are attracted by the QAnon or Q-adjacent rhetoric? It's really hard to say. And does she care, you know, as long as she's got the numbers? Does she care? Does she care? When I did the report on Kelly Brogan and Sayer G, who runs Green Med Info, there was this long request for comment exchange where I kept asking, gee, what are your feelings about QAnon? Do you denounce QAnon? Because he had retweeted a, a hashtag. There was a couple of Q adjacent. Yeah, there was a couple of Q adjacent references that he had made. Uh, and in the email exchange, there was no clear denouncement. And I, and I was kind of interested in that moment of, oh, he's going to actually draw a line in the sand here. And I think a lot of these influencers are watching their engagement rise, or there's a certain amount of of traction that their messaging is getting. And they're almost playing chicken with both Facebook and Twitter moderation, but also with the politics and the values of their more progressive followers, right? It's like, how far can I push this before I lose too many people, but I'm also gaining a whole bunch of engagement in the process. It's a a case study. We have a case study. Since the election day, the Trump campaign has made more money in donations than leading up to the election. Right. That's a perfect example of everything you're saying. I'm sure if you look behind the scenes, a lot of these influence, Rashid Buttar is a great example in terms of his social media traction. Mickey Willis is a wonderful, like most people, he was an, he was an LA guy. He had some stuff, but people in this community knew him, but that was it. And now it's international. So they are, I would, I don't want to say guarantee, but I would speculate heavily that a lot of these figures are monetizing this like crazy right now. And at a lower level, we get B-level or even C-level yoga influencers who start to flirt with QAnon or Q-adjacent material, and they see their engagement like quadruple or go up by several orders of magnitude. And that might be incredibly validating and gratifying for somebody who is otherwise anxious and suffering from self-image issues or they're hanging on by their fingernails to a yoga business that's failing during the pandemic. I'm sure the engagement, the addiction factor of the engagement loop is incredibly influential and also forgivable as well. I don't blame these folks for going towards this danger zone like moth to the flame because it's very bright and very heated. 
A question came in from Mike in the UK. I'm going to read his question, and then I'm just going to embellish it a bit. He said, uh, do you think conspirituality should or will be in the school curricula? And um, my embellishment is, I used to go to the university that's here in town, Marshy International University, and the president is an old friend of mine. I, I taught him to meditate when he was in high school. And so I emailed him and the executive vice president, and I said, do you realize the, the extent to which conspiracy theories are going wild in town here? In fact, one of your old faculty members is pushing QAnon on Facebook and so on. And they were kind of shocked. Uh, maybe they've been too busy to pay much attention to it. And I, I said, is there a critical thinking course on campus? And the president, whose name is John Hagelin, said, yes, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. And I, I think I want to go and talk to it. If anybody in there thinks the moon landings were faked or the earth is hollow or any of these other conspiracy theories, we should straighten that out. Anything one can do, I think, to strengthen one's critical thinking skills at whatever age one is would be extremely valuable. And it would be a good prophylactic against any kind of confusion and um, getting misled. The spiritual path can be kind of like a razor's edge where you can easily fall off one side or the other. Do you guys have any recommendations on what would be good ways to strengthen one's critical thinking skills? Let me just start by saying that I've gotten three or four emails from college students who've already said that our podcast has inspired them to do independent research on the topic of conspirituality. So in that sense, it's already getting into the curriculum, which is pretty cool. That is cool. You know, I think that uh, I I produced maybe last year uh, a kind of shrunken down version of the the curriculum that I produced for um, yoga teacher training programs on cultic dynamics in yoga and Buddhism. And uh, I shrunk it down to like an hour and a half for young adults. And I've been thinking for a long time that as part of social studies class in high school, it would be amazing to have a unit on coercive control or on cultic dynamics. Like the influences are very recognizable. The mechanisms of cultic dynamics are like thoroughly researched. If I had been 14 years old and somebody had said to me, what do you think charisma is? And Socratically led me through some kind of discovery process about what makes a certain person stand out or gather a certain amount of social capital in a way that seems to be effortless. If I had been asked to consider that question and then to consider, well, how can that be manipulated or how can an idea of altruistic service to humanity actually conceal a financial fraud, right? Like these are basic, very simple questions that any 13 or 14 year old, I think, can engage with and then have their ear to the ground when their buddy from high school comes to them with an MLM offer or when they show up at the talk of a charismatic leader and they're offered a a one week retreat for several thousand dollars that's going to change their lives. I want to say, too, that this is perhaps a controversial thing along the lines of of where you started, Rick, in in the introduction to the conversation. In terms of something that has been hidden, I think that anyone who is on a quote-unquote spiritual path does well to consider that the entire history of spirituality and religion has been as much about people seeking meaning and beauty and compassion and healing and connection in community and contact with the greater cosmos. It's been as much about that as it has been about a kind of charlatanry and a kind of enabling of various forms of con artistry and disempowerment. That has been the shadow of spirituality all along. 
And unless we reckon with that, unless we bring good critical thinking to bear on that shadow aspect of spirituality, and I would even say religion as well, it continues perpetuating itself. So I'm, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of, of learning good critical thinking. I think it, it always serves you well. Uh, and Matthew always reminds me there's a lot more going on than just becoming a good skeptic. Yeah. I've been taking some uh, classes in the Upanishads and Gita from Swami Sarvapriyananda, who's the head of the Vedanta Society in New York City. He's such a brilliant intellect. And he's often referencing books like Shankara's Crest Jewel of Discrimination and other things like that. And it makes clear to me something I already knew, but maybe that is not as appreciated as widely in, in spirituality, that the greats, so to speak, of ancient spiritual traditions had very sharp, clear intellects and thought about things and discriminated and, and discerned very carefully and subtly. There's no, nothing sloppy about their thinking. They also had a process. There are modes of oral instruction for something like the Gita where you just don't cite, you don't talk about the shloka without talking about the four commentaries that, that you were trained in. That ostensibly keeps you honest. You could just do an experiment for anybody in the audience that has books published by Hay House, look to the back of the books and see whether or not the author has included a bibliography or whether they cite their sources or whether if they're making medical claims that they can back them up. We move in New Age spirituality and global yoga and Buddhism into this almost like a historical, free-floating, entertainment-based self-help genre that has very little to do with how these subjects were approached in pre-modern terms, which was really rigorous. Very rigorous. Someone named Steph from England asks, do you have any thoughts on theories regarding dark energies such as the flyers, the alien installation that Castaneda spoke of, or the Wetiko virus that Paul Levy writes of, or even the archons that the Gnostics speak about? I'll just say that the process of science is just the continual accumulation of knowledge passed down over the generations. Things that we think of as very simple today baffled the ancients. Germ theory is still, what, 200 years old, and humans have been around for 350,000 years. So for most of that time, they were assigning sickness to gods. So I think that when I hear questions like that, not that we're ever going to know everything. I always think of visual systems and how my even my cats around here can see way better than I can and see things and fields of energy that I can't and that goes across the animal worlds. So there will, of course, be things we don't understand, but I don't, I don't assign um, anything too great to any dark energies or anything of that nature. I think we just don't understand what's happening. Yeah, that's a good answer. And uh, I didn't mean I, to have any I kind would... of tone of ridicule in my voice when I was reading Steph's question, because I think there are all sorts of subtle things that we don't really experience and can't really know about for sure, at least not, mm -hmm. not very many of us. So it's hard to comment on such things. Well, I want to say to, was the question, the question came from Steph? Steph in England. I just want to say, and maybe if any of my previous comments in this meeting have seemed offensive or harsh, that what I respect about the poetry of the unknown is that 
experience is very difficult to describe. And I think sometimes uh, it's too bad that Julian left because sometimes he and I butt heads about this. It's not like scientific method and our capacity for rational inquiry and peer-reviewed research answers every question. It's like there's a there's always a margin of mystery and the undiscovered. And for those of us who don't have access to good research or good epistemology, that margin is going to be wider. And I want to just affirm that the way in which we describe the unknown in spiritual terms, especially if it is ominous, can have something very compelling about it from two different angles, either something that is yet to be discovered or something that needs to be remembered. And here's where I want to refer to some of the work that we did with Dr. Thea Wildcroft on the podcast where she said very sagely that we have to be really careful not to ridicule the language or the archetypology of something like QAnon, because just like with the satanic panic of the 1980s and the 1990s, what we're probably seeing is people finding a voice for experiences that were too horrible to name. We are seeing people find a language to describe memory that would be otherwise repressed. And the real amazing thing about QAnon is that it allows the person who is devoted to it to feel as though they are a hero doing something about this terrible thing. They are literally emboldened. They're, they're delegated by General Flynn or whoever it is to become a digital soldier in the saving of the world. And so when these very poetic and gothic descriptions of the ominous unknown come up, I want to hold space for the fact that trauma is very difficult to talk about and to name. And the process of seeing our way through to the difference between personal memory and a cultural or political reality is something that we have to take great care in doing. Because the worst thing that we can do with the QAnon followers is to tell them that they are stupid or that they're venal, or that they're obsessed with sex or something like that. What's more likely to be true is that, A, they've been indoctrinated by something very powerful, and B, one of the reasons they've been indoctrinated is that it resonates with something that they can't quite name. And I think it's really important to, to empathetically hold that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I think, the word judgmental. A conversation like the one we're having can easily come across as judgmental, but it, I think our underlying sentiment is one of compassion and concern and friendship and a desire to see everybody flourish. And personally, I, I feel like spirituality, broadly defined, has a tremendous uh, contribution to make to this paradigm shift that we talked about earlier. It's really the, the most pivotal influence in it. And I hate to see it sabotaged or undermined. And I kind of feel like QAnon conspiracy theories are, are doing just that. Plus, I don't like to see a lot of people die unnecessarily. And all, all this COVID denial and mask, anti-mask stuff and everything else is literally killing people. I, since Julian's on here, I'll butt heads a little with Matthew. And I, I don't think of butting heads, but complimenting in a sense, because I still hold that 
shame has an important value to our species. There's a great book called In Shame Necessary by Jennifer Jacquet, and she just talks about how we don't live in tribes anymore. I understand that, but say you're with 50 people and somebody does something wrong, you put him or her in the center and you shame them to understand that their actions are affecting everyone else. And it's really hard to... I actually talked to her on Twitter briefly about this a few months ago. It's really hard to implement shame in the digital space. It's much easier on a one-to-one space, right? Because it doesn't come across in the same way. But I do think that calling things out are necessary. And like you said, I find it very hard to be compassionate or offer that when somebody, their actions are actually killing people. Yeah. And if that's not called out, I think that's also problematic as well. Well, I feel compassion for the people who are dying. I feel yeah. You know, oh, yeah. a bit yeah. of anger, actually, for the people who are spreading the misinformation. That they, It almost seems like there should be legal consequences. Yeah, and this is something that actually when I used to run teacher training programs in New York, I used to bring up to people because about the way that yoga is presented. And I would ask if anger is a negative emotions and it's seeing people's reactions, but it's a natural biological instinct, anger, frustration, confusion. These are all things and they're just tools. They're just, first of all, they're all neurochemical physiological reactions, but they have context. And if you can use that context as a fuel for change, then it's totally appropriate. And so I think that using the range of emotions we have to us, if it's going for something productive, it can be very helpful. Good. Okay, we have about five minutes left. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't discussed that we should have? I actually think that your last sentiment was just a really good closing one in the sense that understanding that your actions, and I'm thinking of the literal translation of the word karma, which is action, and the idea that it's not some necessarily mystical force, but it's just that every action you take will therefore resonate through your chain of events and through those around you, and then possibly for generations, depending on that action. But that those actions that people are taking right now, even though it seems individual, it does have, it does influence people. And so understand that even just simply sending out a tweet, if you have a hundred followers, still sets off a chain reaction or has the potential to. So think discriminately about your words and your actions and how you're acting and how that will affect other people. Think about people who are immunocompromised, who have suffered. I'm a cancer survivor. So it's something I think take seriously about how people's actions, because they have a certain perspective on things, it doesn't mean that that reflects everyone else. And I think it's important to remember that we we all are trying to work together. And I agree with your sentiment, Rick, that we are trying to help as many people as possible. And before Matthew responds, I just want to play off what you just said to say that I think that the more spiritually evolved one becomes, if that's a commonly understood term, the greater one's responsibility is to act with great impeccability. There's a great quote from uh, Padmasambhava. He said, Although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So we have to actually be more on our toes, more precise, more careful, the more we progress. Matthew, like, do you want to add? I like the grain of barley flour. I think that my relation, the relationship for me between the, the whatever vast sky I can see and the grain of barley flour is that at this point, 
I kind of remember, and for a few moments each day, I experience a little bit of the vast sky. And the rest of the time, it's really looking at grains of barley flour and trying to make them into nice momos. <laughs> and, and, or I hope that I hope that this conversation does help in coming down to earth a little bit and looking at the sort of granular responsibility that we have for basic things like health and social welfare. Yeah, good. All right, you guys. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. And I've been really enjoying your podcast. Let me just show your podcast on the screen here for a second. Conspirituality.net. It's not displaying very well at the moment, but there you are. And so I encourage people to check it out. It's on all the usual podcast things like iTunes and everything. A friend of mine emailed me yesterday and said... um, how can they do so many episodes? Aren't they running out of things to talk about? We were actually <laughs> concerned about that when we started, and we just realized we're just going to keep this going because there's just too much. There's so much. <laughs> there really is. And you go deeply into very specific, interesting areas. So I always feel like I, I learned something. That means a lot coming from yeah. you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you yeah. so much. And thanks for all of your work over the years. Yeah, thanks. It's been my pleasure. So thanks to those who've been listening or watching. I hope you've enjoyed this. And if you haven't, uh, I hope you'll keep watching <laughs> Pat Gap. I just felt like it's a, an important thing that we needed to cover. We have a, a, a Facebook discussion group in which I create a new thread for each interview. And the link to that will be both on YouTube and on the Bat Gap page that I'll create for these guys. So if you'd like to discuss all this, go in there and uh, go at it. Thanks a lot. Next week, I'll be interviewing uh, a Dr. Sue Mortar. I hope she's not on your shit list, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I've not heard that. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Ray. Take care.